Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Around the world, school children are taught reading, writing and arithmetic. But in China, there's another compulsory subject, Xi Jinping thought. Students must learn the supreme leader's political philosophy. It's part of the curriculum. But now the Communist Party wants to make patriotic education a law. I'm David Rennie, The Economist Beijing bureau chief, and this week I'm joined by our Southeast Asia correspondent, Su Lin Wang. We're asking, when China is already awash in nationalist education, why does Xi Jinping want patriotic education to be written into law? This is Drumtap from The Economist. Su Lin, welcome. Hi, David. Great to be here. It is so good to have you on Drumtower because The Prince, your fantastic podcast series on Xi Jinping, I think really launched the idea of China podcasts at The Economist. Alice is away this week, but it's a real treat to have you on. So many of our listeners still write to us and say they came to Drumtower through The Prince. Oh, well, it's great to be here. And it's obviously gratifying that so many people seem to like The Prince. And I get a similar response. People say that they're really pleased The Economist is continuing with its China podcasts through Drum Tower. So, Sulin, you're in Indonesia today. Is that right? That's right. I'm not sure if you can hear, but there's the call to prayer outside my window right now. So I'm now covering Southeast Asia, 11 countries of around 650 million people. So it's been a lot to try to even begin to wrap my head around. Yet I still keep an eye on China because I do think it's actually pretty hard to understand what's happening in Southeast Asia without looking at China every now and again. Well, we don't have the call to prayer here in Beijing. We do have construction noise because we are an atheist country uh, bent on economic development. So I guess that is appropriate, (laughs) but sorry if you hear drilling. But I'm really excited to be on Drum Tower and talk about patriotic education because what's going on in patriotic education in China really does seem to reflect what we discussed in The Prince, especially the lengths that the Chinese bureaucracy will go to now to please and obey Xi Jinping. So I'm really interested in what you've been uncovering about the topic in China and how you've seen it evolve. So, of course, the bottom line, Sulin, is that there's always been a ton of patriotic education in China, going back to the founding of the Communist Party. But there's not just more of it. There's a feel that it's becoming more compulsory and it's certainly more focused on Communist Party history and loving the party as well as loving the country. And you can see that in all of these activities even in nursery schools, where they're dressing up in replica Red Army uniforms from the 1930s and 1940s. 
I'll just try this video from a, a little school. It's actually a Red Army themed school. Okay, let's take a look. So you see, Sulim, we have a school playground. Pretty typical. Oh, and here they are. All the kids are in blue and grey Red Army uniforms. There's a bit of military marching, a bit of two-step. The uniforms look a little bit too big for a lot of these little kids. I do like the welly boots, though. One of them is wearing rubber boots, which I don't think is Red Army uniform, but it is raining, so good parenting there. So the kids are raising the flag, and now they're in their classroom shouting slogans. One of these kids can tell she's on camera. I can see her looking at the video camera out of the corner of her eye. I think that if you put that in the context of a British school or an Australian school where you're from, I think people would be a bit startled, no? Definitely. I guess we have patriotic education in Australia, where I'm from, or the UK, where you're from, but it's not five-year-olds dressing up in military gear and marching around the basketball court. Yeah, I have to say that we didn't have anything that I remember as being specifically patriotic education. We had, you know, had a lot of lessons about glorious bits of British history, most of them about beating the French in battles a very long time ago, as I recall. Um, but for example, the British embassy had a coronation ceremony the other day, and they had the first two verses of the national anthem. And I realised I didn't know the second verse of my own national anthem, because we just don't sing it. That is very similar to us in Australia. So we did have patriotic education. We sang the Australian National Anthem every Friday at school assembly. But similar to the Brits, we only ever sang the first verse. So no Australian knows the second verse, I guess, unless you're like prime minister or someone who frequently has to sing the National Anthem in your daily life. So it feels quite different. So that video of the school kids we just watched was from 2017. But how has patriotic education been changing more recently under Xi Jinping? I think the big dramatic shift was that for the first time in 2021, we saw schools handing out textbooks, teaching people about Xi Jinping thought. And if you pause for a moment, that is the first time since the days of Chairman Mao that a living leader of the Chinese Communist Party is being studied by name in Chinese schools. Yeah, I mean, it is pretty significant that the last time a lot of Chinese people were running around with a book, it was Mao's Little Red Book. And now here we are with textbooks praising Xi Jinping. To be fair, it is not preaching kind of world revolution and class struggle. It's more benign, in some ways a bit more boring, but there is this drumbeat on teaching children that what's important is to conform, and that in fact, helping children to conform is an act of love and kindness. So there's this whole phrase that Xi Jinping likes to use about how we have to help children and young people learn to button the buttons of life correctly, because if you get the first button in the wrong hole, then you'll have to only correct it later. And this textbook, one of the chapters, opens with an injunction to button the first button of life correctly. So it's all about conformity is in the interests of kids. Yeah, it's a very stark image. And these textbooks, you know, they contain things like, you know, images of borders and border guards and wind turbines and high-speed trains. There's also things like patriotic songs. So the Xi Jinping textbooks include songs like the I Love China song. I must admit, I don't think I've ever heard this particular I Love China song. I know there's multiple I Love China songs that are popular at karaoke nights, but I don't know if I know the one sung by little kids in their patriotic education curriculum. 
So there you have it. I love you, China. Sample lyrics. I love your boundless forest. I love your towering mountains. Uh, it's all very wholesome. I must say it's pretty different from a Baba Black Sheep or Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. It's definitely a patriotic song. But I think what's really interesting when you study these Xi Jinping textbooks, and actually if you look at the manuals that are handed out to teachers to tell them how to use them, is that the aim is not just about making a kid-sized dose of adult ideology. The ethos that flows through all of this is that actually everyone in China should be thinking like a school kid in a classroom. The idea is to bow to Xi's authority like a pupil bows to a teacher. It's to make dissent unthinkable. Yeah. And that's something that I explored in The Prince, you know, and really wanted to sort of get under the hood of Xi Jinping thought. And the way I think about it is, you know, Xi Jinping, he wakes up every morning and he's like, oh, I've got this organization, the Chinese Communist Party, which is the size of the population of Germany. That's how many members it has. And how am I going to get all of them to follow my message so that they can then harness 1.4 billion Chinese people to get on the same page, my page? And I think Xi Jinping thought is really about making sure everyone is like pulling in the same direction to make China great again, you know, to be part of this national rejuvenation, which is all about the Chinese Communist Party being at the center of everything and Xi Jinping being at the top. These political slogans are not unique to China. Politicians use these slogans as a way to sort of harness people. But of course, in China, the one big difference is that Xi Jinping is backed up by this enormous coercive machine such that, you know, you better get on the same page as Xi Jinping thought or else. It's also about the claim to authority, right? And so I think what's really interesting about patriotic education is it's not just about trying to make people love China and do what they're told. We're seeing so kind of strongly this idea that Xi Jinping is the final, most legitimate authority on everything. And so with these textbooks back in 21, you saw the textbook drafting committee explain that the point of national education at every level from kind of six years old to university is to introduce Xi Jinping's views on economics, politics, the rule of law, science and technology, culture, education, ethnic policies, religion, national defense, ecological civilization, party building and diplomacy. And the list from the committee goes on. It's a lot. Yeah, he is the authority on everything. Yeah, and I saw this shift happen in Hong Kong too. So when I joined The Economist, I was supposed to move to Beijing and join you in the Beijing Bureau, but it was difficult for me to get a visa. And so I was waiting in Hong Kong, but it was a really interesting time because there'd been these huge street protests in 2019. And in 2020, the Chinese Communist Party imposed a national security law on the city. And the change that we saw in Hong Kong was so rapid. So, you know, when I first started covering Hong Kong before the big street protests, it did feel sort of like the UK or Australia. You know, th there was a lot of freedom, a lot of sort of debate, critical thought, and that permeated the classrooms and schools of Hong Kong. But since then, we've seen a real shift towards a more mainland style of education in Hong Kong schools. And something I heard over and over again when I was covering the protests from politicians and business types who were more sympathetic 
to the Communist Party was that there had been a failure to impart patriotic education on young Hong Kongers. And if only that had been done, if only Hong Kongers felt more pride in China, then, you know, there wouldn't have been this big democratic uprising. Now, I personally don't think that analysis is necessarily accurate. But what is interesting and notable is that supporting patriotic education in the city is one of the ultimate tests of loyalty for Hong Kong officials. And, you know, the current leader of Hong Kong has come out and said that Hong Kong too will follow this new patriotic education law that we're chatting about today. I think it's so interesting that mainland China has never had the same debates about whether to teach Western-style critical thinking or communist-style top-down patriotic education. But Hong Kong did, right? You know, at a time when Hong Kong was worried about its economy slowing, they set out explicitly to teach more critical thinking, to teach kids to think for themselves, to argue back, to question and challenge teachers. And now that's all being rolled back. And I think that was one of the most interesting things that you were reporting on in your time in Hong Kong. I remember when I was in Hong Kong hoping to get to Beijing, I used to call you up, David, to chat through story ideas. And you actually encouraged me to look into this tension that Hong Kong teachers and parents were facing. You know, do we try to teach our kids critical thinking or do we just push them to repeat the propaganda and the patriotic education curriculum that was increasingly permeating Hong Kong classrooms? It's that dilemma in any kind of unfree society, isn't it? Is Do you want your children to be rebels and then be unhappy? There was one interview I did that is seared into my memory of this young guy. I call him Ming in the story to protect his identity. He grew up in mainland China in the 1990s, 2000s, and was studying his master's in Hong Kong during the big pro-democracy protests. And he was telling me that his dad was actually part of the Tiananmen Square pro-democracy protests in 1989 and after the crackdown went back to his hometown and became a civil servant and raised Ming to protect himself first and foremost. So, you know, do what your teacher tells you, write the correct answers in your exams, but always think for yourself, but keep those thoughts to yourself. And Ming was saying that he wanted to become a journalist, but instead he ended up returning to his hometown in China after his master's degree in Hong Kong, and he joined the civil service. So in a way, the patriotic education and the whole Chinese system was very effective on him, and he's now become a part of the bureaucracy and and the very machine that he, in a way, has tried to resist as well. It would be indecent for me and you as foreigners with passports, we can always leave China to say to Chinese people that they should be willing to ignore their career prospects completely and just sort of follow the path of liberty. Yeah, exactly. And I guess that's connected to a question that I have become really fascinated by, which is how effective is this patriotic education? I think you and I both know, Sulin, that it has been extremely effective. And that's because there are lots of reasons to be proud of being Chinese. It's just that the party has worked extremely hard to co-opt people who are proud of China and to say that they should be proud of the Communist Party because if there is no Communist Party, there is no new China. But you see some of the most sophisticated foreign-facing bits of the propaganda machine conscious that Chinese young people are getting a reputation for nationalism. And this is a video from the China Daily, an official paper under the Propaganda Bureau that explains why foreigners shouldn't be surprised if young people are proud 
of their country's progress. The actions of Generation Z in China have made many Westerners curious or even overwhelmed, causing them to wonder, how did they become so patriotic? To find the answer, one must understand what Generation Z has experienced while growing up in China. Number one, China has achieved unprecedented rapid economic development as well as long-term social stability. I mean, that is factually correct. It is, although, of course, a really interesting question that we're all covering at the moment is that Gen Z is also, right now, for the first time since they were born, experiencing a slowing economy and rising youth unemployment. And so that kind of performance legitimacy that we talk about quite a lot on Drum Tower, where the Communist Party points to its record of success, that is getting much more contested. And it's into that context that we see the Communist Party drafting a new patriotic education law. So David, why is this law so important and what made you want to think about it? Sula, it's a good question. And it's the latest example of policies that are already in force and completely visible in everyday life being turned into standalone formal laws. And that strikes me as an interesting development. And it's worth asking the simple question, why do you need a law when you're already doing it? Yeah. They play you an announcement for a spokesman from China's legislature explaining why they think this patriotic education law is a big deal. Interesting. So there were a lot of slogans that we hear over and over again in, you know, Xi Jinping's China. But one thing that really stood out to me in this announcement is this conflating of loving your country and loving the Chinese Communist Party. And to me, that is what makes patriotic education in China so different from elsewhere. In the West... Love of one's country can very much mean actively opposing the prime minister of the day, the president of the day, the ruling party. But here in the Chinese context, patriotism is all about submitting to the Chinese Communist Party. You're right, Sulin, that this is a system that doesn't have room for loyal opposition or construct dissent in Xi's China. Questioning Xi Jinping's policies is like a school pupil talking back to a teacher. That is disorder, and it will lead to chaos. What stood out to you, David, as new or different about the law? Well, one of the fascinating things about all these new bits of legislation is that actually a lot of them is recycling bits of other laws, bits of other guidelines that are already out there. It's more the idea of it all being put in one place, but given extra teeth by being a standalone law. And there is a sense that the number of people who have to snap to attention and do what they're told is getting bigger. So it's not just about schools and teachers. It talks about artists and writers associations, book publishers, religious institutions and priests, even parents. So I think American, Australian or British parents might be a bit startled, for example, by Article 16 of the law, which spells out that parents shall include love of the motherland in family education and cooperate when children are asked to go on an activity either in or out of school. So you don't even get to choose what your children hear from you as parents at home. I mean, that's pretty extraordinary. It's very big brother. 
The other thing I noticed when I was reading the law was it references Hong Kong, Macau, Taiwan, and even overseas Chinese as all being target groups for this patriotic education push, which is, you know, pretty terrifying in lots of ways. As someone who is of Chinese heritage myself, I find the way the Chinese Communist Party increasingly talks about overseas Chinese just terrifying. You're absolutely right that every time we hear Xi Jinping appeal to the loyalty of, you know, children of the dragon, people with yellow skin and black hair, his phrase, meaning overseas Chinese, that sounds really odd to people who don't possess a Chinese passport. But for this piece, I was keen to know inside China, this domestic legislation, what do ordinary Chinese as well as kind of local officials think that a law changes about patriotic education? And to do that, I went to a patriotic site, a red tourism site that is one of Xi Jinping's favourites, the Red Flag Canal in Hernan. And that's where he went straight after the 20th Party Congress, right? That's right. He said that everyone in China should study this site because it's such an important place. And we'll hear much more about that in a minute. And Sudan, I have to say, I've been really enjoying reading your articles from your new beat in Southeast Asia, even if we miss you on the China beat. And everyone listening here can enjoy them too over on our website, as well as much more about China uh, from all the team here. And for access, you will need to be a subscriber. So if you're not already, we have a free 30-day digital subscription and you will find that at economist.com slash drum offer. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So David, what was the Red Flag Canal like? It is a pretty extraordinary place. It is a Mao-era project, one of these great taming nature with a human army type schemes dug at times by hand through solid mountains to bring a sort of river to a dry bit of Hernan near the border with Shanxi. People died making this thing. It was very, very tough. But it was from the start a Mao-era propaganda staple. And Xi Jinping loves that place and has repeatedly highlighted it. So do you think that Xi Jinping's recent visit has made it even more popular? There's no doubt. The way to know that is that not only are there big exhibition halls full of photographs of his visit last autumn and a whole wall of Xi Jinping quotes about the spirit of the Red Flag Canal and what we should learn from it, but you can also see these tour groups from state-owned enterprises or from universities or army troops in their kind of camouflage, a lot of them have made special red banners that explain why they are there. And it'll often say, you know, study the spirit of the Red Flag Canal, hold high the banner of Xi Jinping. And then outside, you know, because it's China, you have to have the photograph taken. And uh, I actually took some audio of workers in their white shirts, black trousers, the official uniform, having their group photograph taken. And this should take you back soon. And if you hear at the end, there's a bit of E.R. Santiago. (laughs) 
Oh, there's so much I miss about China. The way everyone says "cheese" eggplant instead of cheese when they take photos is definitely one of those things. It is one of those happy accents of language, is it not? That the word "cheese," which makes your face the perfect shape for a photo smile, is basically the same as "cheese" or aubergine. So, David, why did Xi Jinping go to the Red Flag Canal? It's really interesting. He gave a talk when he was there about the spirit of the Red Flag Canal. That it is about the ability to endure hardship. And to persevere when the odds seem too daunting. He also talked very specifically to young Chinese people. We actually mentioned this in the episode about that war movie, Born to Fly. That when he went to the Red Flag Canal, he went to a tunnel where some young people formed a brigade that dug through the mountain, and in fact, several of them died. And he said that young people are too pampered nowadays and need to be willing to write new chapters of history with their blood. Who did you meet on your trip? So I went and bothered a bunch of tour groups, Sulin. There were a bunch of state-owned enterprise workers, and one of them was Liu.、Uh, I asked her, "What does she think that the Red Flag Canal represents?" So she's talking about the importance of enduring hardship and perseverance. That's right, and that message is everywhere. Yeah, and I guess that's a key theme of Xi Jinping's China. You know, there is a real personal element to things here, and he sees himself as someone who was forged through his struggles during the Cultural Revolution. You know, he lived in a cave for seven years. His skin would swell up with flea bites. He toiled with the peasants,、um, and he has this famous quote that the knife is sharpened on a stone, and people are made through their hardships. That's right, and you could hear that from people spontaneously at the canal. I met a group of students from Henan Agricultural University. They had their own little university flag, and their leader, Wang Jinsong, was bang on message. 就是还是说，就像习主席那时候讲的一样，然后我们还是要就是发扬这个吃苦耐劳这种精神，就是还是革命是干出来的，也不是说出来的，而是实实在实实在在干出来的，用命换出来的。Gosh, so he's saying, as General Secretary C has said, we need to promote the spirit of eating bitterness and enduring hardship. Eating bitterness being that classic Chinese phrase. He goes on to say that revolution is action, not talk, and you've got to put in the work. And sometimes even that can cost lives. It's pretty grim stuff. Yeah, and then I asked him why then. Given that everyone is already surrounded with this kind of education as they grow up, why do you need a new law? Egoism是我们民族精神的核心，然后身为我们不管我们是对吧，青年人也好，中年中年人也罢，我们作为一名中国人，首先要爱国，然后在这个法律方面，如果树立起这个有一个这样的法律法规之后，我们可以针对那些
So he's saying that, you know, as a Chinese person, we first have to love our country. But also this law is helpful because for those who aren't patriotic and those who do things that aren't patriotic acts, the law can come after them and discipline them. That's exactly right. And I should say he is far from the only person at that patriotic site, that canal, who said that. They see it's in two halves. A law shows that the party is serious about wanting everyone to obey, but it's also there to punish those who have the wrong thinking. I'm really curious, David. So when you're out and about, how eager are people to speak with you? Like how many people did you approach who were happy to chat? Actually, at these kind of sites where everyone is surrounded by the right message to say, it's fairly easy. I wear my press card around my neck. I go straight up to them. I say, I'm a journalist. I'm doing a story about this site. People are pretty comfortable, not least because they tend to be quoting in some ways the slogans they can see on the walls around them. It's not a dangerous place for someone Chinese to tell you what they think. Does anyone ever veer off script? It's a good question. You know, A lot of the people there are on sort of Communist Party study tours. They're either party members or trying to become party members. So it is a self-selecting crowd. So given people seem to talk about not just the carrot, but the stick, can you talk a little bit more about that and, you know, why people you interviewed thought there was a risk of people having unpatriotic thoughts? Absolutely. And I got a really clear answer to that from a middle school teacher, Mr. Shen. Uh, He's from Jiangsu and he is an English teacher. And so he's kind enough to do the interview in English. I should say that his 80 or so students were extremely excited to see a foreigner interviewing their teacher. And so the whole interview, you have to imagine like this donut of excited school kids listening to how good their teacher's English is. I think all the people in China, do you understand? Mm -hmm. Yes. We all need the spirit. We we, we need to love China. Ah. All the people, all the Chinese people. I understand. Yes. So... Already, I think, Chinese people love China. And already in schools in China, you have patriotic lessons. Why do you need a new law? Maybe, maybe the new students, they are affected by the foreign, foreign influence. Influence, yes, yes, I think. Ah. I love that he's so enthusiastic about speaking with you in English, but it is striking that it comes back to foreign influence. And this is something that I just heard over and over again when I was living in China. It really is a very pervasive framing in China for many Chinese people. That's right. And it's written into the kind of the manuals that teachers like Mr. Shen use. And he listed, you know, foreign films, foreign material on the internet, foreign magazines. I don't know if that was a dig at The Economist. Probably. And, you know, if you're going to be difficult about it, it is an odd point for a man whose job is teaching English to Chinese kids to be worried about foreign influences. Right, exactly. He should be sort of embracing it and encouraging his students to go out and explore the world in another language. I do find it funny, though, that Marx and Lenin are mentioned in this patriotic education law, and I must say they are not Chinese. So when it comes to foreign influence, it seems like an exception is made for them. The other thing that struck me as I was reading the law was that, in a way, there is so much to be celebrated in Chinese culture. You know, there's brilliant literature and philosophy, but none of that is mentioned. It's all about centering the party and centering the Chinese Communist Party's ideology. I guess the party would say a lot of that classical education is covered by their mention of 
excellent traditional Chinese culture. But it's absolutely this idea that the party has taken Chinese culture and melded it with Marxism to create the kind of perfection of rule under Xi Jinping. We're seeing a lot of different laws about things that are already happening in Chinese society and everyday life in China now being passed. Why is there this focus on making these new laws, David? It tells us something really important about how Xi Jinping wants to govern and how he wants the party to establish legitimacy. He has this favourite phrase that I'm sure you've heard, Sulin, Yifa Zhiguo, governing the country according to law. And that was at the heart of some of his remarks at that really important party meeting last autumn, the 20th Party Congress. So there's a lot about the law and the rule of law in there. He's talking about construction of a rule of law state, a rule of law government, a rule of law society. But I guess the point to make is that it's not actually rule of law as we understand it in the West. It's rule by law. Exactly. And in fact, Xi Jinping has given really important speeches in the past where he has said that things like the idea of having independent courts and judges, or even the separation of powers, where in some way the law sits above the government. These are dangerous Western ideas that China can never accept. And the bottom line is that there is no law in China, not even the constitution, that binds the Communist Party. The party is above the law. And so this is using law as a promise of professionalism, that officials will follow standardised rules, that these are well-made tools for governing. These are not a promise that the individual citizen can go to a court and say the government is abusing my rights. Right. It's a very, very different understanding of rule of law and legal theory compared to Western liberal democracies. And I guess it's actually something I see in Southeast Asia as I've been traveling around trying to learn the region. There are several governments uh, in this part of the world that have a similar approach to China as regards what you know the law is. And the leader of the country sees himself as above the rule of law. But there is this promise of legitimacy, right? It's this fascinating mix of laws as an unanswerable edict, but also that the bureaucrats at every level will be behaving according to a rule book and the rule book will be enforced very strictly, but by the party. We're not just talking about a national level of government, right, David? How do local government officials see this? It's a good question, Sulin. And a really revealing interview actually was with the director of a new beautiful museum in this very dramatic mountain gorge to a long-dead county-level party secretary who isn't particularly famous, but his main claim to fame is that Xi Jinping praised him. And the director of this museum, when asked him how a new patriotic education law would affect his museum and his work, he used this phrase, you know, if there is a law, we can follow it. So it guides the masses. 
And if there is a law, we must follow it. So it binds the masses. It's that idea of guidance and obligation. So guide the good, punish the bad. That's it. But of course, one of the problems with the language of these laws is even as they are calling for absolute obedience and conformity with the law, some of their phrases are deliberately vague and ambiguous because that leaves the party room for manoeuvre in interpreting what the law means. What's a concrete example of that? So there's a new law that came into force on July the 1st, the Foreign Relations Law. And it's basically a kind of wrap-up of all kinds of existing foreign policies, even some laws that are already on the statute books. But this one wraps them all together and then it spells out the duties and obligations of the Chinese people, Chinese companies, arms and say, you know, a long list. But they're all given this duty of safeguarding national sovereignty and securities. That's no surprise at all. But it ends by saying that they have a duty to safeguard China's dignity, honour and interests. Okay, so that sounds quite broad. That is super broad, right? And there is even a bit for foreigners to notice, which is where it talks about China abiding by international treaties, there's a catch. So one of the articles says that the way that China implements treaties must not harm national sovereignty or security or the societal public interest. So what that means when an international treaty on, say, forced labour bumps up against the Communist Party's definition of what's in China's societal interest, nobody knows. The only thing we do know is that if you mess with the party, this is a law. And so there'll be legal sanctions. And I guess the thing is that it's a feature, not a bug of the system, that it's deliberately vague. And so people are constantly wondering if they've crossed, you know, a so-called red line uh, and people sort of self-censoring or controlling themselves because they know that in a way there will be a law that is sufficiently vague that the party can use if it wants. You've put your finger on it. I mean, there was a really interesting exchange I saw recently between a foreign diplomat, a Pakistani diplomat, and a top Communist Party official who said, why do we need a foreign relations law? And the reassuring answer was, oh, well, this is going to make China's foreign policy so much more predictable for our friends and allies. But of course, because of all those really ambiguous clauses that they stick in there, it's actually anything except predictable. So it's the veneer of legal certainty. It's the words of a rule of law. But actually, underneath, I think, Sulin, it's that Communist Party spirit, that idea that ultimately the party was born as a movement that believes in power and will and force, and that the party will never be bound by something like words on papers because winners make the rules. I mean, that having been said, we are seeing a shift under this new patriotic education law. And I can't help but think of that guy I spoke about earlier, Ming, who was studying in Hong Kong, whose dad was in Tiananmen Square in 1989 and and raised Ming to follow the rules, protect himself, but ultimately to still try to think for himself and have his own thoughts. And now under this new patriotic education law, it's now explicitly criminal for that dad to tell Ming to still have his own thoughts. So we are seeing a shift right now in China in the direction of, you know, things getting even stricter and even harder for parents. And I guess, you know, you and I know that this is not North Korea. It's not a totalitarian state. So a lot of these things are what Chinese people call pocket crimes. The police are not going to knock on everyone's door and ask them whether they're kind of making their children sing I Love China before bedtime. But it's if you're in trouble with the police for something else, 
and it turns out that you're a Tibetan activist who refuses to send your children to patriotic summer camp, then they now have a new tool to use against you if they need to. Right, they have another law. Exactly. The toolbox of coercion has gained a new instrument. So does that mean it doesn't really have any effect at all? I wouldn't go that far. I think it's a signal of seriousness of intent. It's like this matters to the party so much that now, look, it's been made into a law. And so if you're a local government, you now feel much more pressure to build that extra museum. Or if you're a school teacher, you have much more pressure to make sure that the amount of patriotic education in your curriculum goes up. So it's about, as that museum director said, it's about guiding people to know that this is now not optional. If you dissent, then you've just broken the law. Sulin, thank you so much for joining us on Drumtar. Hopefully we'll have you on again with Alice. We can have the three of us. It's been really great. That would be great. And thanks so much for having me, David. And a massive thanks, as ever, to everyone who's been emailing in. And it's really fun to find out where you are listening to us. So a big hello to Tom and his kids who listen on the morning school run in Singapore and to Janak in Kathmandu. And remember, you can email us at drum at economist.com. Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore. Alicia Burrell and Barclay Brown produced this episode. Sound design was by Weidong Lin and our music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producer is Marguerite Howe. Is globalization dead or can free trade be revived? Register now for Economist Impact's Global Trade and Supply Chain Summit on September 19th and 20th in Dubai. You learn how to improve supply chain visibility and resilience, boost trade with emerging markets, and take actions that make trade sustainable. And as an Economist podcast listener, enjoy 30% off with the code PODCAST30. So sign up now at economist.com global trade week. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.